1: Good morning. We are so pleased to bring you a terrific show today that will help everyone. And we are going to be talking to Dr. Kate Hendricks-Thomas, who along with David Albright, Dr. Albright, has written a book called Bulletproofing the Psyche. I think all of us have heard a lot about what to do after there's been trauma, after there's been some very difficult situations. But we can also do things to prevent and to arm ourselves with some skills and some exercises that will truly help us and perspective, actually, that will keep us from becoming as affected by what are undoubtedly difficult times in our lives, whether it's neurological or physical or both. And we will talk today with Dr. Kate Hendricks-Thomas. Hi, Kate. Hi. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled. Talk to me about how you and David pulled together people from very different walks of life to come up with ways. I mean, you you go with a very bold um, secondary tagline, which is bulletproofing the psyche, preventing mental health problems in our military and veterans. And I will also add to that families.
2: Yes, yes. Well, David and I have been friends and colleagues for a long time. Mm-hmm. And we've worked in the military social work and military health spaces. And we're, we're both working there because our own transitions from active duty were, were pretty much debacles.
1: <laughs> Which you is know, we, not a surprise, I'm sure. Not, not a surprise. Listening.
2: Right. So we learned the hard way and got really passionate about helping people through that process. Mm-hmm. But the more we talked about the things that help somebody through a stressful transition period or through a stress injury or or anything they have going on, those same tactics and techniques at a, at a neuropsychosocial level are also preventatives. So if someone who is about to become a new parent starts employing these tactics and techniques parenting will be easier and they'll be better at it somebody who knows they're going to go through the stress of starting college if they start employing these techniques before starting college that process will go more smoothly for them and we got really passionate about talking about application of these of these processes for military for law enforcement for professions that we know are going to be high stress and and trauma lots of potential for trauma. Mm-hmm. And that's why we wanted to pull a team together who work, um, who work on the science behind mental fitness training, which is what we call the cultivation of a bulletproof psyche. And we, we reached out to our network. Um, there are academic researchers. There are military veterans who work in the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. There are um, mental health providers who work with families and we asked them to leverage their expertise and to, and to, engage in a conversation about how we could prevent some of the really common transition stress and some of the really common mental health problems that we were all tired of talking about and we wanted to do something about. Well, I think what you're
1: talking about is so familiar to everyone. And by putting some of these techniques together, people sometimes forget that It goes beyond medication. It goes beyond talk therapy. There are actually things you can do to help yourself, to complement other modalities that are being used to help you through something. And there's also resistance to being helped post-trauma, which -hmm. is why I love that you all are taking on. Here are some skill sets to help you bring your best each day. And you mentioned high-stress careers, and there are many of them. Uh, I would venture to say almost any career can have its own stressors. Some are more life-threatening than others. Did you find any surprises as you pulled the team together?
2: Well, um, I was really surprised by how... How small the community of people who are interested in having the prevention conversation really is. So, a lot of us work in the post incident sector, specifically when we're talking about military and law enforcement, but Mm -hmm. there's less research happening in the training commands. And so, bulletproofing the psyche is all about taking what we know works in clinical health treatment after Mm -hmm. things have gone south Mm -hmm. and moving them, shifting them so that in the training command, when you step on the yellow footprints and join the Marines, core, you're also learning how to regulate your nervous system and not just breath work on the rifle range so that you can shoot straight. You're Mm -hmm. actually learning how to control your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So what we talked about in this book and what was really exciting to write about as, as a group were all of the different tactics and techniques for helping ourselves be prepared to take a punch in the teeth. And some of it is um, some of it involves brain science. Some of mm-hmm. it involves social and family support. Some of it involves um, spiritual fitness and finding purpose outside of self. There are a lot of different ways to attack the same problem and drawing those voices together to share best practices. Um, It was surprising to me how small that community was, actually, uh, that wanted to talk about prevention. But the group that we gathered was incredibly passionate about the topic. Well, I think that there is a
1: greater tendency to try and fix the problem after it's happened. And, you know, I've never really understood that because if you get to the root of the problem, you can figure out ways to assist with providing a shield, you know, giving them uh, the tools in which to work. In my work with Veteran Caregiver, which is helping the caregivers of our wounded, ill, and injured, just teaching them tools to better take care of their own uh, self-care and their, their fortitude and their energy has proven to be very interesting. I am actually not surprised that there's a small group because I think that the prevention is more complex and it varies for people, and sometimes the complex is let's let's just go fix the problem after it's happened, as opposed to prevent it. Talk more about this small population as everyone came forward, and I do imagine they were very passionate about this because this is a huge help if you can. But they sh- they needed this book back in 2003 before the surge.
2: Well, I would say there is, you're right, there's an element, if you want to talk prevention, you're Mm going to have to be a little bit of a salesman, Mm -hmm. because you have to establish, one, that what you're suggesting works, and two, Mm -hmm. that what you're suggesting, which is going to take an investment of time, anything that's behavioral medicine, takes time, energy, um, you know, it's it's incorporating a practice into your day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. So, There's an element of sales to that. And you're saying you don't have a problem now, but you're in a high-risk profession. You're probably Mm -hmm. going to face some known stressors. Let's prepare you to face those stressors. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's invest the time in doing that. There's an element of convincing people that investing the time is an important thing to do. Do
1: you find that that became easier as you began working with this group of people, because you realized you were not alone in trying to find solutions? And I think innovators often have a difficult time breaking through the initial
2: hurdles. Well, and I I had the opportunity to meet with specifically military leaders who had become convinced that prevention in the training space is something that needs to happen. I, Mm -hmm. I can think of several in particular. Some wrote narratives for Um, Some wrote narratives for Mm -hmm. the anthology. And uh, I met with General Jones, who is working Mm -hmm. on research with First Recon out on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And he's realized that nervous system regulation can prevent stress injury and is interested in research um, to demonstrate that quantitatively to to hopefully convince the total force. But that's what I found. I found that when you're talking about programmatic change, like change in a training command's um, curriculum content, you've gotta have an evidence basis. And that's what this book tries to do, is outline the evidence basis for what we're suggesting, for these bulletproofing the psyche practices. Well, and you've
1: walked in their shoes. You're a Marine. And I, I think that you must come with enormous credibility in terms of doing this. Yet you're also very aware of the corporate bureaucracy that exists in trying to make innovative change, because some will view that as you're stepping on their turf, or we, we we're doing it this way because it has always worked. Did you find any of that pushback?
2: Well, there's there's always that pushback. I actually used to work for Marine Corps Training and Education Command down at mm-hmm. Paris Island. Mm-hmm. And I am very familiar with how slow change is when you're trying to change, <laughs> when you're trying to alter the curriculum that is entry-level training for the mm-hmm. military. So there has to be an evidence basis. There has to be a relevant why. And after the last 17, 18 years of war, there is a relevant why.
1: Definitely. There definitely is. And I I think, though, with this interdisciplinary team, with the personal experiences, I believe that you have enough stories to tell that augment. So the anecdotal and the stories are compelling in terms of supporting the science that you have clearly put together. And I'd I'd love to talk more about that. Uh, We are coming up on a break. But let me just start with... Those in trauma research were they some of the
2: first ones who responded
1: positively to you in terms of prevention?
2: I would say yes. I mean some of the leaders in um, some of the leaders in behavioral medicine research, some of the leaders in uh, who have been studying somatic practice, body based mm-hmm. practices right. in healing of trauma um, are are advocates for the for the prevention of such trauma. Uh, so I would say yes. That's where a lot of a lot of the initial support has come from. One of my favorite researchers is Dr. Elizabeth Stanley, and she wrote mm-hmm. the final chapter of the book. It's called "The Way Forward" with one of her students, Kelsey Larson. And mm-hmm. I love her take. Her take is there is an evidence basis for self regulating the nervous system in advance of a deployment. Let's do it let's actually train people to regulate their nervous system and prevent stress injuries in the post-deployment space. Well, and I imagine that can be very contagious in a good
1: way and that you can teach this and others can teach it to others and this can be leveraged to truly help those who are about to face difficult times. And thank you. We're going on our first break and we will be back talking further with uh, Kate Thomas A Marine Corps veteran and a storyteller, a very good one, who talks about how we can build mental fitness and we can actually bring the best of ourselves each day to handle the hurdles that are no doubt coming. We'll be right back.
0: We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages.
3: been rock climbing. I recently tried rock climbing for the first time while on vacation in Colorado. I was a total Gumby. That's slang for a newcomer to the sport. As a Gumby, I was guilty of excessive hang-dogging or holding onto the rope instead of grabbing the rocks. Repelling, also called abseiling, is descending down the rock using the ropes. As I was climbing up, my husband hollered up to me, hey, there must be a word for this quicks a tickle or a foolish capricious person in the pursuit of ideals came quickly to mind when i finally got to the top it started raining and there i was literally between a rock and a hard place what's the word for the fear of high places that of phobia it's i'm carolyn davidson and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app
0: too funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Kate Thomas, and we're talking today about bulletproofing your psyche, about preventing mental health problems for military and veterans and their families. So, you know, I've got to ask the obvious question. Why
2: do you do this work? What's the why behind it all? Well, uh, I would say I've always been a stove toucher, and I had to touch a few stoves, uh, and that's why I became (laughs) passionate about this work. I grew up in a military family. I joke that the 11th commandment in our family was thou shalt join the Marine Corps, so my brother and I both did. We actually were deployed the same time out in Iraq. Um, My my. brother was wounded. Uh, He had been in country about one month before his vehicle ran over a double-stacked mine. Um, Several Marines were killed, and he was flown back to Bethesda Naval Hospital really significantly wounded. Mm -hmm. That experience um, sparked an interest in me. For working with wounded warriors. And mm-hmm. I started I was a yoga teacher and a fitness teacher. And I started working with visibly wounded warriors on on adaptive wellness, mm-hmm. volunteer efforts, because somebody like my brother was always an athlete, and right. he wanted to remain an athlete post blast. So I, I, I started doing that work. And I realized that Physical well-being was certainly an important component to somebody finding their new normal after service, but it certainly was not even, it wasn't the only component and it may not even have been the most important component. And I started looking at wellness through a more holistic lens and looking at mental health and, and um, social well-being. And I got involved in in public health initiatives. I actually worked for uh, family programs for the Marine Corps for a little while, trying to help people with their communication skills and conflict resolution skills so that they could so that they could effectively um, weather stress because they had mm-hmm. a strong network of support behind them and From there, I started studying public health and uh, went back to school and became became a health researcher. I probably began emphasizing the mental, physical, and spiritual component, not because of my brother's transition from the Marine Corps. He left with a visible injury and and had a strong support system, Mm -hmm. but my own transition from the Marine Corps was an absolute disaster. I was angry after my brother had been wounded. I... I thought that I wanted to surround myself with other Marines who had been overseas and no one else, which Mm -hmm. meant that I was surrounding myself with a lot of people who had the same anger imbalances or issues. Mm -hmm. And when I left the service, I thought it was going to be no big deal, not a problem. I was married to another Marine. Um, He had an active stress injury or an active mental health condition. Mm -hmm. And our life very quickly resembled something from a Jerry Springer show episode. We were it it was not a it was not a time in my life where things were coming easily or i was doing all the right things or 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 i was weathering stress well and i thought i'm very stressed out i can just train more and i wound up injuring myself in the weight room on my second workout of one day Ugh. and i had to slow down and my physical therapist made me go to yoga and i started on the yoga mat learning about slowing down and learning about self-awareness and learning about recognizing imbalance and i looked at myself and i saw a whole lot of imbalance and i've been very passionate i stumbled onto the things that make a person resilient and healthy i stumbled onto the things and injured myself into into self-awareness and self-regulation But what if I'd been trained to do those things before I ever left the Marine Corps, before my brother ever got wounded, before I ever deployed?
4: What Mm -hmm. if that had been
2: part of my toolkit? And uh, from there, I've always been interested in upstreaming.
4: I've Mm -hmm. been interested
2: in preventing people from going through the things that I went through so very gracelessly. And uh, that informs the work I do today uh, to a great extent.
1: That is a marvelous backstory because it it makes total sense. I I think we all know that transition is stressful, but there are many stressful events in life. And it's a rare person who has not experienced trauma of some sort. And so what you're talking about are life skills, coping skills, survival skills, thriving skills, I like to call them. Because I, I think that we can... We can learn how to do this, and and a lot of it is mental framing, um, perspective, gratitude. Talk about some of the other things. That's
2: just from my perspective. I want to hear it from yours and the science. Well, um, the things that make a person really well, the well and well-being, the the underpinning is social support and not social support like I had it and like I thought I had it. Lots Mm -hmm. of friends that thought the same way and could drink as much as I could drink. That's not social support. Mm -hmm. Social support is a diverse group of accountability partners that bring different perspectives to your life that operate as a check and balance on, um, on your activities and thought processes that are people you can go to in times of stress and and they're not necessarily just going to tell you what you want to hear so the cultivation of true social support is finding the right uplifting people to draw around you and to invite in and that's an area I had trouble with I had a lot of anger and a lot of us versus them thinking there were marines and then there was everybody else um So uh, inviting people in is an area where military and veterans sometimes have a little bit of trouble because it can be an insular culture, but it's the bedrock of other types of change. And then I talk about it in terms of self-care, but it's also self-regulation. So there are very specific body-based practices that can help you control your response to stimuli. And mm-hmm. these are these are things that a person can be taught to do. And it's a little bit uh, bio-individual. What works for one person may not work for another. So it mm-hmm. can kind of change and shift. I have a friend who tells me she feels that when she's swimming laps. And when I'm swimming laps, I'm trying not to drown. So it's, it's <laughs> not the same for me <laughs> right but then another important component I you know I talk about it in terms of spiritual fitness or spirituality mm-hmm. you can approach it from a secular perspective and talk about the human need for transcendence for a sense of purpose or you mm-hmm. can talk about it from a religious perspective and talk about the need for faith and and uh, reliance on something higher than self whatever perspective you have You need to have a purpose outside of yourself to be really well and really happy. And those things, working in concert, help a person um, become resilient. When I left the Marine Corps, I had none of those key foundational pieces. None of them. Seriously? None of them, absolutely. The way I viewed social support was I had a lot of unbalanced fellow, you know, people with similar problems around me. I, un- I didn't want anyone else because if you weren't exactly like us, you were somehow wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it came to uh, mind body practice, I was one of those pain as weakness people. So if you run till ah. you throw up, that 's a good thing if mm-hmm. you if you get on a yoga mat and breathe you 're wasting your time that i didn 't understand nervous system regulation at all, and mm-hmm. then I was so far away from my um, you know from for me the the faith of my youth mm-hmm. that I was disconnected I had stopped the Marine Corps had become my religion I had stopped mm-hmm. volunteer work I had stopped connecting uh, with civic organizations, all the things that I used to do that kept me engaged outside of my own myopic World, uh, I had stopped doing. You know, I wasn't going to church anymore. I wasn't. I wasn't serving a purpose higher than myself. The only thing I cared about was uh, my Marines and the Marine Corps and my work. I had elevated work uh, to a significant degree. So when I left the Marine Corps, there went my friendship group. Mm -hmm. Um, There went my my sense of purpose. There went almost my entire identity. And I didn't have the skills to regulate myself through that stress. And so I went for masking behaviors like, uh, you know, going staying up too late or um, exercising too hard or um, surrounding myself with people that were wild and crazy. And none of that was healthy. And all of it eventually brought harm. But what you're describing is
1: not unusual. It is not unusual when people have experienced such intense experiences together and then they come back and it's confusing, it's different, you have a different vocabulary, you have different responses, but what you're also talking about is the isolation that can often occur after military service. So it's a particularly fraught time for a lot of uh, veterans. And also, if you would speak to it, for their families who now don't understand who has returned to them.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know that was, I had a very close knit family, but during this particular time in my life, I, they did not know the real me and I didn't Mm -hmm. invite them into my day to day. I was very invested in a veneer of, I have everything together. There's nothing to see here. Mm -hmm. I was very invested in my family and loved ones only seeing what I wanted them to see uh, because I, I wanted them. I never wanted them to worry. I wanted them to, to, you know, be proud of me, and I wanted to maintain this image of myself as Marine Corps officer, strong woman, you know, never anything, never anything that I would be not proud of Um, so that was that was important to me and i had lost the ability over time to connect across difference and i would say that was something i had to really cultivate i had to i had to actively work on the ability to be close to people who did not have my experiences and did not necessarily think the way i did about everything but it was actually Finally talking to another woman veteran and saying, my life is not all sunshine and roses right now. She laughed at me and she said the kindest thing anybody's ever said. (laughs) She said, me too. All of us. You're not special, Kate. Your hardship is not special. These are systemic issues. And for me, that was so empowering and Mm -hmm. so liberating because if it wasn't just about me making personal mistakes, then there was stuff we could do to prevent this from happening to other people. And that, to me, felt exciting and that felt like a calling and a mission and um, a way to give back to the community I loved so
1: much. Well, but it was, and that's the isolation I'm speaking of. I think that when we get insular and we are focused only on self and our misery and we are surrounded by, we're very influenced by those we surround ourselves with. And I think that, you know, making decisions about whom to surround yourself with is very, very important. But your story rings so authentic and is true because this is what happens to so many We are, let's start on this topic Uh, and we'll, we have another break and we'll continue it afterward. Do you think a lot of what you went through and what a lot of others go through is control, trying to control what you could because things were chaotic when you were in country
2: and then when you got home? Yes, I definitely think that there are two different major stresses that service members are dealing with. And one is the post-deployment reintegration. Mm -hmm. But two, and I think the bigger stress, is the transition once somebody leaves activated status or active Mm -hmm. duty. Becoming a civilian again was the hardest thing I ever did. It took years and it was I was not prepared for how difficult it was. I didn't see it coming,
4: mm-hmm. but you
2: can never be a normal girl again.
4: Mm-hmm. And
2: uh, I didn't see that coming. Normal is a setting on a dryer. I don't
1: like it. Yeah, I just never apply it to people because I just don't really believe that there is such a word that suits that. We're going on a short break and we will be back and we will talk further with Kate Thomas about the stressors in life and how you can arm yourself to cope with great survival techniques that are science based, make sense, and will make your life a lot richer. We'll be right back.
0: We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages.
4: Have you heard?
3: Notice that no matter how carefully you put the Christmas lights away, they still come out all cringle-crangled and jitterty-jitterty the next year. Christmas tree lights were invented in 1882 by Thomas Edison, and by 1900, these miniature versions of his electric light bulb were being advertised to the public. In 1895, Grover Cleveland proudly sponsored the first electrically lit Christmas tree in the White House, featuring more than a hundred multicolored lights. By the next Christmas, members of high society were hosting flambustious Christmas tree parties. Of course, in those early days, the services of a wireman had to be obtained, as many people had considered electricity as a bit of a bugaboo. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words.
0: Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference.
1: Welcome back. Kate, we've talked a lot about why this book is written, why it is so valuable to have all of these best practices and science-based information put together. Tell us how the book is broken down and how you deliver this material so it's digestible because it's a lot.
2: It is. It definitely is a lot and that is something David and I talked about at length. We really wanted to make we wanted to make this book something that was information heavy, meaning you have to have data statistics, you have to share research. But at the end of the day, I love what Brene Brown says, and and stories are data with a soul. Mm-hmm. We wanted every single chapter that shared content to have a story that went mm-hmm. with it. And so so that's what we really tried to do. And the first portion of the book outlines the issues so we we talk about some of the issues facing transitioning veterans and service members we talk about um incidence rates of stress injury and depression and those ranges are incredibly wide 15 to 50 percent of veterans have some sort of depressive condition or stress injury mm-hmm. um, that's a really broad range meaning sure we, don't under, we don't understand the scope of the problem um, and then we talk we have a chapter uh that a. uh, uh Political science PhD named Kai Hunter wrote about warrior culture because this is important if you're going to understand yes. working with veterans. You have to understand the insularity of the culture, and I tried to explain that a little bit um, when I when I shared there was an us and there was a mm-hmm. them. There were people that had deployed and people that were at war, and then there were people that weren't.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so we. We talked a little bit about the cultural issues facing the Marine Corps, and we shared a couple of stories. One in particular was um, one in particular was a young woman named Jessica who left. She was a combat correspondent for the Air Force. She was uh, she saw a lot of ground combat in Afghanistan. And when she came back and tried to become civilian Jess- Jessica again, mm-hmm. she had an active stress injury and did not know how to connect with other people to um, seek help, to reintegrate, to, to do any of those things. So her story kind of illustrated how hard it can be. And then we shared a story from a veteran named Ben, who has gone on to uh, found a nonprofit that works on uh, mindfulness programs for veterans. But he Mm -hmm. came back um, with he saw a significant number of IEDs and he came back with a stress injury, just constantly looking for potential explosions anywhere he was, any road he walked into, any road he drove down. And he talked about his um, nervous system reactivity. So in a chapter that shared the science, the the neurological, the, the hormonal situation mm-hmm. that's happening in stress injury, we also shared Ben's story. And Ben's story was one of reactivity and then learning how to de-escalate his own nervous system. So the first time he felt it, he mm-hmm. had gone over to his girlfriend's house and she had drawn him a hot bath and turned off the lights and just kind of put him in the tub and said, you know, breathe and relax. And that was the first Mm -hmm. time he felt his nervous system downshift. And from there, he started chasing it. He started going to yoga classes. He started doing breath work. And he started learning about the power to turn off his stress injury symptoms by Mm de-escalating his own nervous system. So the first part of the book talks about the problems. It talks about Um, how you can de-escalate your nervous system, and it shares some stories of people that have successfully done this. Mm -hmm. Um, We then talked about special populations. So the experience of a racial minority, of a uh, lesbian or gay service member, the experience of a woman veteran, all of these experiences are slightly different. And if you're going to work with this community, you want to understand Um, You want to understand what works with specific populations. And we Mm -hmm. shared some best practices there. And then the fun part of the book was the best practices section. The third part of the book is about how do we do this? Okay, you have convinced us that it's necessary. You've convinced us that it's scientifically possible. You've told us some stories about people for whom it's worked. How do we actually do it? Mm -hmm. And so here you see chapters on spiritual fitness um, how does someone practice spiritual fitness? What exactly does that look like? How do you find purpose outside of self? Um, mm-hmm. And then we shared the story. I'm really proud of this particular essay. A, an English teacher in Alexandria, Virginia named Matt shared his story of finding connection to others and finding purpose in the classroom and, mm-hmm. and in his faith when he got back. So he was really struggling after he got back, after he was injured. Um, and it was finding God and finding mm-hmm. a purpose in serving his students that that helped him heal and helped him go back to his family and parent and, and be a good husband. We talked about social support cultivation and, mm-hmm. and shared some stories with that. And we talked at length about how one can bulletproof their psyche. So from A nervous system perspective we shared some of the science and the science is this two minutes twice a day can change something called your working memory capacity now this is the front portion of your brain this is the portion of your brain that does emotional regulation Mm -hmm. and upper-level cognition so Mm -hmm. if you want to be smart and make good decisions and if you want to interact effectively with others you want as big of a working memory capacity as possible regularly drilling yourself to downshift your nervous system and downshift your brain waves into theta state creates a growth in your working memory capacity. And we bring out that science and and uh, and share exactly why and exactly how you can train your brain for mental fitness. And that's the portion of the book that really excites me because I find that empowering. You don't have to wait until you go through trauma to have a big working memory capacity that's ready to to deal with stressors, you can cultivate one and grow one in advance. And at the end of the day, it optimizes performance. So if you're anybody interested in peak performance, you're
4: Mm -hmm. interested
2: in growing your working memory capacity. Well,
1: that is an absolutely fascinating concept because think about it. It can be used for all the purposes that you've already talked about in the military sector, but it can be used to help someone battle a cancer diagnosis. It can be used to battle anything that may be a hurdle, a challenge, a stress injury in their lives. Is that true?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I, I always used to say it can help you be a better parent, a better partner, a better, better professional, because mm-hmm. I, I overuse alliteration. Um, no, I love that myself. <laughs> <laughs> but it really can. It can help you bring your best self to each and every day. So. Just like you go to the gym and do bicep curls because you want strong arms, you want to do regular, regular activities that take your brain to theta state so that you can have a bulletproof psyche, so that you can be optimizing your neural activity and the last portion of the book really focuses on this idea that you can bulletproof your brain and and shares the science of doing that. Um, and, And shares the stories of some people who've made these practices again. What practice works for you is going to depend. So what works for one person may not work for another. There are people who can't meditate. They hate meditation. It actually mm-hmm. elevates their blood cortisol. Meditation is not the practice for them to go to theta state. It mm-hmm. might be something else for them. Um, and do you
1: talk about that in the book?
2: We do. You, do. do you talk about how, um, you know,
1: try this, try this. If that doesn't work, try this. I mean, is it is it as simple as that, you know, almost like, does this drug work? No, we'll try another one. Um,
2: bad analogy, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely, absolutely. So we describe what you're looking for. When your brain goes from um, alpha wave, meaning you're talking, you're ambulatory, you're up and moving down into theta wave. It's not Mm -hmm. sleep. So delta wave is Mm -mm. long, slow sleep pattern. Theta state is this restorative place. And when you drop down into it, you can kind of feel it happen. It's a downshift. It's a floating. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Is that what some
2: people call the flow? Yes, it's okay. dropping into flow state. And you feel it when you come out of it, you feel like you've had rest. And that's mm-hmm. how you know you were there. Um, I get there usually through breath work. So controlling my inhale and exhale and focusing on nothing else, but usually my long, slow exhalation does mm-hmm. it for me. That works really well. I know people for who, whom repetitive motion does it. So those swimming laps or, mm-hmm. um, you know, something of that nature. And then I have a lot of people who tell me that yoga works for them. Um, you know, simply lying still with their with their dog next to them works mm-hmm. for them. So it's it's as simple as trying any relaxation technique that you think might actually relax you. And if that one doesn't work, try another one. You're looking for the click. You're looking for the downshift.
1: One of the things I think that is so very important of what you're talking about is that Once you are a veteran, you're in the VA's medical system for the most part, and it's a huge bureaucracy, and you're being given uh, instructions on how to help your stress injury, and yet these complementary therapies, um, even alternative in some cases, can make an enormous difference in your ability to absorb the other evidence-based practices that the physicians and your team feel that you need, especially if you've been injured critically. Are you talking to any of the physicians and talking about how this possibly is one of the most important things possible? Because when you've got a mind-body connection, you have a much better opportunity, mind-body and spirit connection, for good outcomes on the health side of things.
2: Well, and I really feel like the VA has increasingly, we have um, contributors to this anthology that work for the VA. Good. I think the VA is increasingly recognizing the importance of um, the importance of social support, the importance mm-hmm. of, of peer support, mm-hmm. uh, the importance of somatic practice of mind and body working together, right. and the importance of having relaxed patients, whether we're talking pain management, so you're not doping people up on opiates. Mm-hmm. Or we're talking about receptivity to cognitive behavioral therapy. Exactly. And, and that's what I was speaking of because I think so often
1: um, there is a reluctance to, quote, submit to these kinds of therapies because they're not fun. They're not. Um, you've got to clear out the closet, make it a mess before you can put it back together and make it better. But I think with some of these things that you're talking about, clearly if you can regulate before you have this, you could learn to manage it better afterward because you'd have a greater self-awareness.
2: Absolutely. Uh, And getting people to embrace behavioral medicine is sometimes hard because Mm -hmm. it seems woo woo. It seems different Mm -hmm. and it is not drive through medicine. It requires sustained engagement and work. I talk about it in terms of mental fitness training because it is training. It's the Mm -hmm. regular application of techniques that require your involvement. Mm -hmm. And there are some people for whom that's a that's a tough sell, but that doesn't mean we should stop selling it. Beautifully put,
1: because frankly, if we want to be good at something, we have to practice it. Exactly. And we didn't get this way overnight, so it's not going to be solved overnight. And if we are a participant in our own recovery to what we want to be that is often the best way possible because it feels good when you have made progress and you will pass it on to others we're going on the last break of our program and we will continue our discussion talking about bulletproofing the psyche preventing mental health problems we'll be right back
0: we're military network radio and we'll be right back after these short messages
3: your parents or grandparents complain about walking to school uphill both ways, you can tell them about a village in China where getting to school is a real adventure. In the mountainous Sichuan province, children have to get to school from their tiny village of Atular by rappelling, abseiling, and clambering down a 2,500-foot cliff. Using ropes and bamboo ladders to scale this one-half-mile-high brooktumac, the journey is so difficult that the school children, ages 6 to 15 only return home every two weeks. What's the word for the fear of heights? Hypsophobia. A new set of steel stairs is now being considered to help make the journey to school safer. By the way, a rock kumak is a hill so steep, it hurts the stomach of anyone who tries to climb it. It's
0: Virginia.
3: I'm Carolyn Davidson and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app to
0: Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together we make a difference.
1: Welcome back. I think um, I wish you could talk with us on the breaks because I think a lot of valuable information is shared then. But what I will say is that transition, I have yet to hear anyone who had a smooth transition. And yet that is supposed to be training you for coming back and becoming a civilian and becoming the best civilian you can be doing whatever your passion may be, because you've, of course, thought it through completely and you know what you want to do next. And yet so many people struggle with that. So I I am a little surprised, although I don't know why I am at this point, but that it makes total sense. We spend so much time training people to go to war, to serve, to thrive in a, in sometimes a very only survivable environment. But when we come back, the training is not as well embraced. It's a TAPS course, yes, but it's fast. You want to get to your family. You want to move on with your lives. And there's very little follow-through in terms of training the same way that you were trained up. You need to also be trained back. Why do you think that is? And why is there a pushback against this preventive and this smoother transition through science-based practices
2: well i think you have to look at organizational incentive True. and at the end of the day it is incredibly important for the military to select and train for war mm-hmm. uh, the right people you know to, to the degree necessary that they'll be successful on the battlefield that, mm-hmm. that the incentive is there for that the incentive is not necessarily there for the services to return somebody uh, in the exact same condition that they were in mm-hmm. when they joined. I mean, the idea should be that we return citizens back to the community who are better able to embrace. Uh, Their role as uh, citizens and servant leaders, but Mm -hmm. the incentive really isn't there to do large-scale investment, and that's one of the reasons why in Bulletproofing the Psyche, we talk about these tactics and these techniques, which will help a person through post-deployment or transition stress. Mm -hmm. We talk about them as a performance enhancer, because what we're trying to convince the DOD to do is to embrace these techniques, embrace these programs, embrace these practices as something that's going to make a Marine, soldier, or airman better while the services are actually employing them. So this is something that should start at entry-level training, Mm -hmm. and this is something that should be assessed multiple times in the exact same way that twice a year we assess somebody's physical fitness. Mm -hmm. We need to be assessing twice a year somebody's mental fitness, whether we're talking about testing for salivary cortisol changes over time or -hmm. whatever actual biofeedback tool we want to use we need to be checking to see whether people are working on their own uh, mental fitness and once we embrace it as a training standard that is going to make somebody a better a peak performer then there's incentive organizationally for the services to do these things if it's all about are my are my soldiers going to be better civilians? There's no organizational incentive there. (laughs) There isn't, but I would take it one
1: step further and say that this type of training helps them be more fit for duty.
2: Exactly, exactly. It's about... What are they able to do for the service? What are they able to do because we've embraced these practices and principles? And you see the services doing some of it. Family mm-hmm. programs uh, over the last two decades True. or family programs got increased funding and increased attention because we realized that you really can't deploy somebody who has family strife at home. They've got a foundational piece that's missing so we started funding a little bit more family programming we're doing it in pieces mm-hmm. but we're not doing it in a holistic way and we're certainly not emphasizing um we're not emphasizing nervous system regulation and training in the way that I think we need to be emphasizing mental fitness
1: well i love the way that you have worded this because i think that mental fitness makes sense there is Absolutely no stigma about being mentally fit. Um, no stigma about um, keeping in shape your mind, body, and spirit. Wellness is better embraced. But it, it, you know, a lot of people think, well, that's just exercise and nutrition. And yeah, I have to have a couple of good friends. But it's so much more than that because we are in control of so much if we only understand it. And the way you've explained it today is very simple to understand. And I love the, the have a bigger working um, memory capacity because that will help us in all walks of life. And I also really embrace the fact that families are being involved as really good leveraging of the health, fitness for duty, and and the return of someone who has served because everyone does serve in some way, shape, or form. Just ask the teenagers mm-hmm. and the young children. And there's a lot of issues that could also be resolved if the families were given this. For example, in train ups, um, two deployments, or you know afterward. I've worked a lot with the Garden Reserve, and I, I've been surprised by. There's only a certain amount of time that is given to doing these things, which I think is another issue, but with consistency and some follow through, and as you put it, the science behind the fact, prevention has always been a less expensive way in terms of either people or money or both than fixing the problems afterward, because resolving some of these mental health issues afterward is extremely difficult, if not impossible in some cases.
2: Well, and I think you just hit the nail on the head. So the business case for mental fitness is as important as the as the physical case. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I do believe in the science of working memory capacity, because that convinces people at the individual level that this is a valuable thing to do themselves, Mm -hmm. but understanding the return on investment organizationally that that Mm -hmm. inserting these practices into the training curriculum will offer is a necessary step to actually seeing adoption happen. Um, I think it's incredibly important.
1: Well, you're talking about safety, productivity, communications, respect, trust, and allegiance, all of which you need to be a good contributing service member but a good contributing family member as well. And so you don't need to sell me. I, I have bought <laughs> in. I, and I, I really do appreciate the, the sharing of all these important things. Let me give the website again. And it's bulletproofing the psyche, p-s-y-c-h-e.com. And uh, you can find out more about Kate at dockate.com. And more about David at drdavidalbright.com. And, you know, Kate, I know we've covered a huge amount, and this book is just a phenomenal resource for people. Is there anything else that we want to make sure that we bring into the program? Because we have the time talking about the holistic approach here and that trauma happens to everyone in some way, shape, or form, and that this can be used not just for serious, serious um, stress injuries, but also for handling the hurdles of life that just annoy, make you crazy, or when you're around toxic people.
2: Right, or handling your toddler. Oh, Uh, yeah. (laughs) There is (laughs) that. You mentioned the language, and I think the way that we talk about these practice has to has to be very intentional because even when I say the word, uh, you know, recovery treatment, Mm -hmm. uh, there are going to be people who completely shut down. Even if I, if we're not talking about improving performance and becoming a peak performer. I, myself, you know, a decade ago would have ignored you. If it right. wasn't about becoming a better version of myself as right. as a Marine Corps officer, I really wasn't interested. It sounded like a luxury item. You wouldn't mm-hmm. convince me to go to a yoga studio until I was so broken I couldn't do any other form of fitness because that was something, you know, retired people did. It was at the end of the day we have to understand some of the cultural stigma issues and we have yeah, to understand absolutely. who we're talking to what the organization, it's a, we're talking about war fighting organizations mm-hmm. and so i think it takes i think it takes a lot of intentionality with language and with kind of how we share the science and that's what we've tried to do in bulletproofing the psyche we've tried to explain these concepts not as healing modalities, although, right. yes, they are healing modalities. Mm-hmm. But we've tried to explain them as a key and essential component of any winner's training mm-hmm. program. If you want to be a peak performer or, or a winner, you want a big, fat working memory capacity. Uh, you want to be that person who invests two minutes a day in breath work. Well, it's all about the small
1: steps we take. They're easy to do but just as easy not to do. And so it's very important that people are even aware that these exist in terms of options because I think unless you know about it you you can't do it. So, you know, I think putting all of this information in one place and weaving it together with all of the different modalities and the stories and the examples that you provide, investing in mental fitness, peak performance, bringing your best self forward, um, e- even your use of the word winner, which can mean something very different to mm-hmm. different people. But I, for one, you know, would, would love to seek out that theta state because I think it would also help with some of these other practical things like sleep. Oh, yes, it does. It absolutely does. Well, and Um, that's a problem for almost every veteran and almost every American, period.
2: Well, that's why I love this work. So at the end of the day, it has applications for the population David and I happen to work with. We happen to work uh, in the military space, but it has application for my elderly aunt, and it has Mm -hmm. application for my four-year-old son, and it Mm -hmm. has application for his kindergarten teacher. It's Such there are universal principles of uh, utility and practical application that I think help the material resonate, and I hope help people come around to embracing these practices in their day to day life because that's what really matters. Does a reader take away? Um, Does a reader take away some ideas for what they can do Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday to Mm -hmm. make themselves more mentally fit? Do they understand uh, what that can look like? And that's why we use the storytelling. We tried really hard to put a face and a story and a a series of experiences to um, the content. Well, I think you used a very good word Um, that I appreciate
1: very much, and that's intentionality. I think that making the choices to be intentional about our time, our use of time, our use of our gifts is all very, very important. But if we are trying to give from an empty cup, we have nothing left to give. And so by intentionally making time two minutes a day, twice a day, that is really not asking too much. Um,
2: and, And why not do it? Absolutely. I think that it's important that it doesn't require too much. You know, you can't simply say in your busy life, I want everyone to embrace a 90-minute yoga class twice a day. <laughs> That's ridiculous, right? It has to be practical. It has to be something that a busy nurse can do sure. or or a busy stay-at-home mom can try. Uh, and the good news is the science tells us that these practices are quick and easy, and you can insert them into your existing busy life and see actual benefit. Um, And when you read Dr. Stanley's chapter, I think it's really exciting to see the results she got in a uh, a company of Marines pre-deployment, and they didn't spend a lot of time on the meditation training that she offered them, and they saw incredible results, and you can see it under a functional MRI scanner, and that's just exciting, and that's real. It's tangible.
1: I can't thank you enough for coming on today, Kate. Thank you so much. The book is called Bulletproofing the Psyche, and it's about preventing mental health problems. And we are so grateful that you've shared your wisdom, and I will post the link for the book in the show notes. Thank you again for your time today.
2: Thank you for having me. Appreciate you. Total pleasure.
0: Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com and in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance your...